Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Melissa Studdard, and this is Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We're so happy that you've joined us tonight, and we invite you to also join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com, where you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to the journal. We'd like to let you know as well that our Blog Talk chat room is currently open if you would like to chat with other listeners or suggest questions. Our interview tonight is with Tony Barnstone. Barnstone is the recipient of many awards, including a Pushcart Prize, the Randall Jarrell Poetry Prize, the Pablo Neruda Prize in Poetry, and many, many more. He is the author, editor, and translator of over a dozen books, including collections of poems and writings about poetry. His poetry collections are Naked Magic, Impure, Sad Jazz Sonnets, The Golem of Los Angeles, and Tongue of War, a collection of dramatic monologues set in the Pacific during the Second World War. Yusuf Kamanyaka says of Barnstone's work, I admire Tony Barnstone's Impure because of the collection's unrelenting believability and lyrical certainty. Plain-spoken and magical, this poet knows how to make imagination and the real world collide softly. There is a clarity in Impure that reaches beyond the formlessness of modern life. Borders are crossed in the psyche and the flesh, and this collection seems like an elongated song that embraces the most elusive moments buried in language and nuance through the pure naming of things, a mantra of what is and what is dreamt that takes into the sacred territory what no ordinary compass can plot or unplot. Hi, Tony. Are you there? Uh, I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, wonderful. I've got a little bit of a cold tonight, so excuse me if my voice sounds a little off. Um, no worries. But welcome. It's a delight to have you on the show. Thank you. Nice to hear your voice. Oh, great. Thank you. So I wanted to see if you could start by telling us a bit about your most recent collection, Tongue of War. Yes. Uh, well, this, although it's my most recent collection, I've been working on it for a long time. Um, I spent about 15 years researching oral histories um, with veterans of, the, of World War II in the Pacific and doing my own interviews with um, veterans and their families um, and with civilians who went through the Second World War, pretty much from Pearl Harbor to Nagasaki, but also dealing in part with um, uh, the rape of Nanjing and, and some post-war things. And so these are all dramatic monologues. Um, with the exception of one poem, they're all poems in form. Um, which is a the sort of choice I made in part because I wanted to make them very plain and journalistic poems, but at the same time give them a, a poetic quality. So I thought maybe writing in form might be interesting. And um, and it's a project that it took a long time, and and, uh, and it, once it was published, I wasn't quite done with it. And, and since then, I've been working on converting it into a a folk um, alt country blues album. <laughs> so, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Which is currently in production and will be out in about a month and a half. Um, great, great. Well, what is it that compelled you towards this project, meaning Tongue of War, to begin with? You know, 
complicated question. I, I, it, it, I guess it all goes back to a, a, a seminal dinner I had with um, the guy who dropped the atom bomb on Hiroshima, um, pilot of the Enola Gay, Brigadier General Paul Tibbetts. Um, well, I was my first year out of grad school, first job, young professor, wet behind the ears, and they had this guy on campus to give a talk, and I guess they figured um, since I was married to a uh, Japanese woman and and, um, and my in-laws had gone through, I mean, their family had gone through the war, uh, they kind of, maybe they thought some sparks would fly, and they did, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> uh, like they, like uh, pardon me? <laughs> oh, I said, my gosh, it sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you have to respect that people are, are forced to make hard choices and, and follow orders and more. But at the same time, it, I, I, I had to ask how he felt about the, you know, having put, being put in a position of having dropped a weapon of mass destruction on a civilian city and um, killing 100,000 people. Um, and uh, his reactions were really pretty intense. I suppose he must have been asked this question many times in his life. And, um, you know, he said things that uh, I still remember very clearly, like um, that uh, in total war, everyone is guilty, even babes in arms, and they are all part of the war effort, and they all deserve to die. (laughs) Now, that, that of course, is a very extreme position, but it made me think about how we justify our moral choices, particularly when Mm -hmm. dealing with something as terrible as the nuclear sublime, something that we really can't get our mind around, the idea of this, that we've gone to the core of of the building blocks of the universe and figured out how to release that energy in such a way. You know, when they, when they first set off the first atom bomb, they weren't certain that it might, that, that, that A, that it would work, but B, if it worked, that it might set off a chain reaction that would destroy the entire planet. Oh my God! But they still did it. <laughs> wow. So, so if you think about wow. this, it's hard to get your mind around this. And so, uh, from that, I began to think, well, what would other people say about this? And I began to do other interviews and um, and research. And from that, sparked 15 years of research into World War II about warring perspectives on on essentially on on, on the ethics of war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because it does, I mean, I like what you said about how um, you gave it a journalistic quality and at the same time you put it in form because it really does turn out to be a poetry of witness and of, you know, giving voice to all these different people. So, um, you know, the dramatic monologue was a very interesting choice <laughs> for this kind of um, project, I think. I think that when you're dealing, especially with the poetry of witness, you have to think... For me, the the key question is, A, what do I have the right to witness? And B, is it, is it, is it really my point of view or is it really my lens, my eye, my personality that needs to mediate the experience of these atrocities of history, of the, the, the things that the human beings went through that were so terrible for the reader? I think if I do that, I put myself in a position of uh, of either of either taking on the guilt in a way that might not feel entirely true or alternately taking the point of view of passionate advocate from one point of view or another, which puts me in the position of being heroic 
but in a way mm-hmm. that also feels false. So my desire really was to eliminate the self and let history speak in its own voice, and that, that's the dramatic monologue. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, you know, I've noticed in general that over time you've been drawn more and more towards narrative within the poetic structure, and I wanted to see if you could talk about how you conceptualize the relationship between poetic form and narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I um, started out as a free-verse poet, and... Um, not just a free verse poet, but uh, but really someone who rather disliked form. And mm-hmm. I've come, I've really gone uh, 180 degrees. I I, uh, I write both now in free verse and in form. And, and what I've found is that that there are particular forms that um, that provide the kind of skeletal um, underpinning that can uphold the narrative in a way that free verse frankly, just doesn't have the energy to do. Um, and, and, of course, there are many exceptions to this, but but, um, but partic- the epic, for example, doesn't really hold up too well in free verse. Um, the free verse <laughs> epic, just really, you know, Patterson is un- unreadable. Um, the right. bridge is a failure. The cantos are a mess. Um, you know, so it's uh, the free verse epic really doesn't work. On the other hand, uh, the epic in form, has uh, uh, you know at least that the line has some kind of reason for being that is not merely lyrical, and that the problem with the lyrical line is that it puts some it has to shoot off its fireworks all the time, uh, or else it becomes prosaic, and and thus it's hard to have a long narrative if you're always shooting off your fireworks because <laughs> you're you're getting distracted from the narrative and 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 trying to make each line. Um, you know, a lyrical gem. And so I think there's something structurally important about, about form for, for the longer poem. But then, and tell me if I'm talking too much, but uh, in the, in the, in the yeah. shorter poem, the sonnet, I think this, this is a particularly interesting form for narrative because um, the way I like to put it is that the, um, like the Italian sonnet is dialogical, eight lines, mm-hmm. and then a turn in six lines. And then the, the English sonnet is dialectical, which is to say eight lines, four lines, two lines with, with two turns in, in, the, in the sonnet. And so the dialectical sonnet is really the structure of the short story, um, which is to say introduction of conflict, rising action, uh, up to uh, a climax, falling action, and resolution. And that structure in a short story is, is essentially in the proportions of the sonnet. And so if you can get your narrative in there in a condensed enough fashion, the sonnet is perfect for the little anecdote. And so that's one reason I really tended towards the sonnet. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective. I haven't really thought of it that way. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to ask you to read a poem. Um, And I'm looking right now at Balm of Snow, and I think this is actually a really good example of combining um, the lyrical and the narrative um, in a mm-hmm. fairly condensed poem. I'm not as condensed as a sonnet, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which... oh, I'm sure I'd love to read it. Um, this is the last poem from my book, um, The Golem of Los Angeles. And um, is there anything I need to tell you about it? No, it's just set up in, set in Northern California, and I'll, I'll read it. <laughs> Fantastic. Psalm uh, of Snow. I had forgotten how to say yes. That's the trick of heartbreak. It makes you forget yes. The voices in my head were not kind. And so you took me to the woods to empty out. My old shoulder was wired with pain 
and there was a needle in my hip. But we lay on a wide, flat rock in the snow as the intoxicated sun licked our faces with breathing light like a yellow dog, simple in its joy, licking our chins and lips and neck. And a long wind came from over the mountaintop and cooled our left sides. And the Sacramento River wet through us like time and spoke its liquid, foolish syllables, senseless, sensual, almost sentient. And I lay with my head nested between your breasts and listened. Time to climb, you said, and I felt snow-wing angelic as we snowshoed above Castle Lake, leaving traces behind like snow rabbits with webbed feet, silver squirrels, prints on the glass of the world. A little evidence for angels to investigate after that death magic resolves us nothing again. I heard omens in the wind, psalms in the bent, warm sunlight that makes the snow mountains weep. Something was coming, something foreign as joy, a clue to how to live once you're done with sorrow, a way of being in being like a long breath exhaled leaving a trace on the air before it resolves again to air. The frozen lake, ice fishers waiting for something great to rise. The mountaintop lifting its white head in trance and saying its one good word, snow. Wow, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Prince on the glass of the world in the sun like a yellow dog. I love those those lines. Um, you know, the poem speaks to something I think so many people have experienced that feeling of a sort of battered joy at rejoining the world after you've been suffering for a long time. And um, I love the the subtle way that saying yes becomes a larger and larger part of the picture as the poem progresses. It's like it moves from saying yes to an incident to yes to living again. And um, it's really yeah. beautiful. So oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> um, yeah. I wanted to ask you know, one of the things I love about your poems is how they take traditional forms, such as psalms and vedas and sutras, sermons, and contemporize and secularize them. Would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I suppose in many ways it's a lifelong project. Um, and it comes partly from being raised in a secular family. My mother's Greek Orthodox, but um, and my father's Jewish. And my father has spiritual impulses, but if not, you know, relig- uh, going to church religious and going to synagogue religious. And, but my mother, you know, is a believer. So we were raised really sort of between religions to kind of find our own way. If we went to a church, we went to the Unitarian Universalist Church where, um, you know, one day you might hear a Zen sermon and the next day you might hear a parable of Christ. And, and it's all sort of pan-religious. And, and in many ways, I've taken that path. I've spent... Um, decades just reading the the great world religions to try to put together my own way through the world, um, learning from different traditions without necessarily thinking that one has the corner on truth. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I found it all, I found it all, I find it very useful. I think you can see, I mean, even the poem I just read, it's, it's permeated with, um, especially with Buddhist uh, uh, wisdom. And um, oh, yeah, so much. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, this stuff has really been integrated into me, but I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't sit meditation and I don't go to church. I, I just have a reverence for things of the world and and um, and hope for things beyond the world. Now, you know, I thought I had read somewhere that your father translated the New Testament from ancient mm-hmm. Greek. Is that 
There's so much in this poem, actually. I mean, just so many wonderful influences, and just, it's so layered. <laughs> you know. All right, I'll, uh, I'll give it a shot. Here it is. It's called Beast in the Apartment. And actually, this, might, this is the first time I'll have read it out loud, so hopefully I'll, I'll manage it. Beast in the Apartment. Oh, we were talking about form and free verse. Here's an interesting one. This was a double sonnet I was never satisfied with. And so now it's about five times as long as the double sonnet, and I just, I, so that those rhymes and those rhythms are still underneath the surface in places, but I just, I loosened it up into free verse. I think that that's really, for me, the great thing about writing in free verse and form is I can go back and forth until the form, the poem finds the form it wants to be in. Yeah. So here it is. Great. <laughs> in the apartment. I found the lion in my living room, curled on the carpet licking his red claws. And he looked up, haloed with fur, a bloom of blood around his smile, and yawned his jaws so wide, I saw between his great black lips my world in all its flaming symmetry, the haloed cities, people praying to warships that ripped the sky-blue fabric of the sea, the falling towers and those trapped underneath the trillion suns like sparkles on his tongue, each planet crushed like a mint between his teeth. I won't say that this was a dream. How could it be? I felt the hot rubber of his lips, the slubber of his drool, the sirocco of his breath sandblasting my face as I gripped those jaws and wrestled in a whirl with the dumb beast. I won't say that this was a vision. It was the lion for real this time the beast whose hunched muscle I'd always sensed in the dark apartment, whom I'd known only by long scribbles of yellow hair left on the couch, and the shadow paws that pushed me down into the bed at night. Now, here he was for reals, upright beast playing claw piano on my back and letting out a bomb blast roar as we knocked lamps to the floor and danced. At last, he rolled on his back and gazed from carnivorous amber eyes as if to say, Hit me. I won't attack. Simba, I said, and lost my hands inside the nimbus of his mane, and then I felt my way down to his haunches, combed his hide, the reddened prairie of his wheatgrass pelt, until it seemed it was my own body streaking like yellow lightning across the belt, and I felt the slender springbok neck between my teeth pulsing, and bellowed with all the joyous pain of being soiled with lion funk, rank and dancing, a man in a lion suit. I won't say that this is true, but it's true. When I come home, the, fr the frizzy neighborly lap cats leave off, from, leave off from chasing squirrels, leap down from the shingles to the bench, and come snuffling up to me like kittens. And if this lion with sinews that stretch like symbols into the infinite and the carnal, will curl up and go to sleep again, along with the tiger of Blake and the shadow demon of Jung, will go back to being a paper lion, unreal but leaving remembrances co coiled yellow on my carpets. I'll still occasionally catch its oven breath and look up to see the lamps of its eyes and feel its great paw at night pushing me down into the shadow cave where the rest of myself breathes asleep, never to be known, never to be born for real. What a powerful poem. 
Oh, wow. And it was such an honor to hear it for the first time. You read it aloud, so thank you. Um, yeah, it was, it was uh, so, so new that I was revising it on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, you know, I was thinking this might be a good place to talk about the wild and the constrained in poetry. <laughs> mm, sure, sure. Well, that's okay, a good, good good thing. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this poem, of course, I was interested in the Lions for Real, the wonderful poem by um, um, by Allen Ginsberg, where he's encountering his own death, or the or the the the, the fierce vision of the universe that, that that challenges his spirituality, and and um, also interested in those energies in William Blake's Tiger, and I think that those energies um, that are so monstrous and frightening are also those those psychological energies uh, are also of course what gives us um the juice of life you know the i mean uh, 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 as satan says of uh, sorry as uh, blake says of milton that you know he was of satan's camp without knowing it because really because satan's such a more interesting character than god so the question of the raw versus the crux when it comes to poetry has something to do with the question of free birth and form but mm-hmm. for me, it also has to do with those wilder flows of energy and those deeper penetrations down to the archetype that uh, the, the, the willingness to embrace that which you don't fully understand in the poem and allow that to enter and not to write too much directly from the conscious mind. Um, and I mean, this is a poem I understand uh, in a lot of ways, but what I really like about it is that it's, it's bigger than my brain. <laughs> you know, I, I feel I've tapped into something that that, that I'll, I'll I'll have to keep interpreting, you know, myself because it's it's something that I feel. The, I can I can name around the edges, but I think it's bigger than than that. And if I can get to that place, then I feel I've really gotten to the raw. And then cooking it, of course, is bringing it up to the surface in such a way that it creates an interesting journey, and takes your reader, um, uh, kind of step by step to that entrance into the underworld and then guides them down. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, can I ask you, did you feel any Yates in there? Because I certainly was thinking of the second coming a little bit as you were reading it. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, I have been thinking a lot about the second coming um, this year, partly because I'm teaching Yates. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's funny because I was just writing one of my projects is to do I'm working with the uh, artist Alexander Eldrick to do uh, a deck of tarot cards. Oh, and, how uh, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So and I'm writing I'm writing a double sonnet for each card and she's doing original artwork and you know it's gonna be a wonderful project. But uh, one of the uh, I was just actually uh, uh, trying to find ways of um of making uh the second coming uh be part of the fool card, believe it or not. Um, because in the full card you have that egg, which is the egg of rebirth, you know, so that um, right. that you have the, the the it's it's you are the uh, you know you are the zero uh, where the self ends and where the self begins, and that zero is like the egg, and the egg is what when it cracks open you have the new birth, of course it cracks and creates destruction. So in many ways it's like the tower card in that way. So I was thinking mm-hmm. about what's inside that egg, you know, is it yeah. that rough beef beach slouching towards Bethlehem to be born? Anyways. I'm not entirely sure yeah. what I'm <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, you know, I mean, you're really so multifaceted. You're a traditional sense, in the traditional sense, kind of a man of letters. But then on the other hand, you're doing all of this, you know, contemporary multimedia type stuff. 
Um, and you know, we're actually running out of time, so could you tell us a little bit about some of the, the other projects that you're working on and any events or readings you have upcoming or you know, sure. um, publications, anything like that that you'd like to talk about before we close? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, the most exciting thing is that in about uh, five or six weeks where uh, we should be having in hand the actual CDs uh, of uh, a long project now, about a year and a half, uh, called Tokyo Burning, and that's the um, the album based on Tongue of War. And, and then, of course, we'll I'll have to figure out things like how you get that sort of thing on sale, you know, onto Amazon.com <laughs> and iTunes. But, okay, Tokyo Burning, and people can find me on Twitter and <laughs> Facebook, and I'll, I'll bother you a lot until you go buy the album. So that's one way of finding it. Um, <laughs> right. That's, that's A. And then uh, B is uh, the two exciting things I'm really – other things doing, doing is the Terror Project. And that's uh, – I have Alexander Eldridge here now in California. We're working on a daily basis to finish the deck. And that's going to be a, um, a creativity deck that will be used for use in um, writing workshops so that you can use each card to create – to kind of use divination, but you're divining from the self trying to mm. tap into the unconscious in order to find the sources of creativity. And so that's that one. And then oh, the third, I know a lot of writers who will want that. <laughs> oh, I, I hope so, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, only be, it's only because the paintings are so beautiful. I mean, it's just, you know, when you make, when you make a deck of tarot cards, it has to be gorgeous. And Alexander yeah. is the perfect artist for this. Um, and the last thing is that, I, oh, yeah, the last multimedia thing, I'm doing a poetry graphic novel uh, which is called Wolf Creek. I'm doing it with uh, Dorothy Tunnel, an, an artist, and we're working our way on it. It's um, it's a feminist werewolf tale, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which is to say it, uh, it's based upon traditional uh, his, historical cases of women who thought they were werewolves um, mm. and were locked away as schizophrenics. Um, and in many cases, these were women from very traditional, very oppressive, patriarchal families, um, and uh, religious families, and they thought they had been possessed by a demon, and the demon of the wolf gave them permission to grow their hair long, grow their fingernails long, express themselves sexually, challenge the male authority, and of course this was interpreted as being insane. Um, so, <laughs> in, in many ways, it's like the yellow wallpaper. So, yeah. so that's, uh, that's where that one's going. Yeah. Okay, and so you're working on these simultaneously, I guess. That's really amazing and wonderful. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would say that I'm moderately insane in the amount of work I take on, but um, maybe someday if I have kids, I'm going to have to slow down. But for the moment, this is what I do. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. It's just been wonderful talking with you, and um, I look forward to your upcoming projects. Thank you. You've been a wonderful uh, host and uh, and sort of wonderful interview. Nice conversation. Thanks so much. Oh yes, it's been great talking with you. You have a great night. Okay. Bye bye. Bye, Tim.